Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Heavy fighting on the outskirts of Kyiv as Russian forces advance toward the Ukrainian capital. Russia says it has captured large amounts of weapons supplied by Western nations, including the U.S. President Biden is sanctioning Russian leader Putin directly now, but some wonder if the White House's latest actions will be enough to deter the Kremlin. And Biden announces his pick for the U.S. Supreme Court. Republicans react and experts discuss how things could change if the nominee is confirmed. It's day two at CPAC. Familiar conservatives are taking the stage there in Orlando. We've got an inside look of the conference, which is set to welcome former President Trump this weekend. And the People's Convoy made one last stop in Arizona before heading to New Mexico. At this stop, the vice president of the largest Native American tribe came out to greet them and wished everyone a safe journey. Russian troops are pressing their offensive on the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. Both sides report heavy fighting on the outskirts of the city. And Ukraine is ordering national mobilization, banning male citizens aged 18 to 60 from leaving the country. NTD's Allison Lee has the details. Explosions and gunfire sounding in Kyiv on day two of Russia's invasion. After a day of heavy fighting, Russia says it's captured a major airport four miles outside of Kyiv. The airport would allow Russia to land large transport planes and airlift troops directly to the outskirts of Kyiv. Russia also says it has captured weapons given to Ukraine by the U.S. and allies. During the military operation, a large number of weapons delivered by Western countries to Ukraine over the past few months have been captured. Captured among the trophies are the American Javelin anti-tank system and the British Enlor. The Ukrainian president ordered a general mobilization of the population. Officials are also prohibiting male citizens aged 18 to 60 from leaving the country due to the military state. The president says he's Russia's number one target, but he is staying in Kyiv. They want to destroy Ukraine politically by destroying the head of state. We have information that enemy sabotage groups have entered Kyiv. Meanwhile, in a recorded message on Friday, Russian President Vladimir Putin called on Ukrainian troops to surrender and to turn against the current Ukrainian government. Take power into your own hands. It will be easier for us to reach an agreement with you rather than with this band of drug addicts and neo-Nazis who sit in Kyiv and took all the Ukrainian people hostage. The Russian foreign ministry also threatens Finland and Sweden against joining NATO. They say if Finland and Sweden try to join, there will be serious military and political repercussions. The Ukrainian president now says sanctions are not enough against Russia and calls for Europe to do more. Europe has enough powers to stop this aggression. What we are waiting from European countries for is the cessation of visas for Russians, disconnection from SWIFT, full isolation from Russia, withdrawal of ambassadors, oil embargo, closure of the airspace. Both Ukraine and Russia say they are willing to hold talks, and Ukraine agrees to discuss non-participation in NATO. Russia says it wants to meet in Belarus, which is a Russian ally, while Ukraine says it wants to meet in Poland, which is a NATO member state. Allison Lee, NTD News. The UN Security Council fails to pass a resolution that would have condemned Russia's invasion. Russia, a permanent member of the Security Council, vetoed the draft. And China, also a permanent member, abstained from the vote. 
The United Arab Emirates and India also abstained from the vote. The rest of the members voted in favor. The UN General Assembly will take up the draft next. And after Ukraine closed down its airspace for civilian flights on Thursday, today thousands of Ukrainians are piling into cars and trains, fleeing to bordering countries. And TD's Chenny Wu has more. As Russia pounds Ukraine with a second day of airstrikes, thousands of Ukrainians are fleeing, crossing borders in search of safety. Mariana, a mother of two, said the situation is very difficult and that there's a lot of shelling and tanks. She reached safety in Slovakia with her children on Friday, but had to leave her husband behind. Because of martial law, all military obliged, all men must fight for the country, for peace, to prevent attacks from enemy forces and for everything to be all right. We and our children must leave Ukraine. Ukrainian rules restrict men aged 18 to 60, who could be conscripted, from crossing the border. Footage from the country's borders show mostly women and children crossing. We just packed and left. Another mother, Irina, arrived in Poland from Ukraine with her children on Friday. At 6 in the morning, my parents called me from Kyiv. They said war broke out at 7 a.m. They bombed the airport. And in Kiev, the underground metro station is full of Ukrainians who haven't left yet. I haven't been sleeping for half the night. Almost every night I haven't been sleeping. But it all started just yesterday. I haven't been sleeping almost until 5 a.m. Then I slept through the invasion itself. I woke up after two hours and there were sirens. We have started to find out how to leave the big city, Kyiv, and brought train tickets and started to pack belongings. As conflict with Russia escalates, UN agencies estimate as many as 5 million Ukrainians could try to flee abroad. Chenny Wu, NTD News. As Russian troops made their way to Kyiv, we spoke to a former U.S. Marine who had arrived in Ukraine to provide humanitarian aid to people in the country. He tells NTD's Jane Wuerl about the situation on the ground. Former U.S. Marine Sky Barkley arrived in Ukraine two days ago to provide aid to people in the country. Uh, right now we're going to um, a military position um, in the northwest uh, area of, of Kiev in order to uh, link up and plan how to treat casualties and, um, and work out a, an evacuation plan. Um, for any casualties that are taking during the night and in the coming days. Um, there's a, uh, a big expectation of a battle uh, around Kiev um, in the next couple of days, and I think a lot of the world's eyes are going to be uh, uh, here. He described the impact the invasion is having on people. Um, a, a Russian aircraft was shot down, but it crashed down into an apartment, and who knows how many people may have been, may have been killed by that. So... I think we need, as, as a people, as humanity, we need to quit looking at this as a situation and realize that it's, this is people's lives being directly affected. I mean, how many thousands or even millions of IDPs are fleeing towards the western border right now because they're terrified of what the Russians are going to do to them? The, the Russians were, I, I, honestly, I don't think anybody expected the Russians to push in and try to take the whole country. I think what people really expected was... Um, you know, maybe, maybe at the worst for them to push up to, to the Nipah River and take the eastern half of the country. But we're seeing way worse than that. And, um, and I mean, people are cowering down. I have so many requests asking for my team to go and pick up these people in Kharkiv. 
and um, over in Medipool and in other places to try and get out, you know, or a uh, twenty group, a group of twenty orphans here, or uh, a family of ten there. And the re- the reality is, there's no way to move around that easily right now. And um, that I mean, gas is running low. These these kinds of rescues don't play don't take place easily. Um, uh, there are, as I understand it, other um, groups who are um, able to run and, and, and do that kind of work right now, but um, there's there's a big need and not enough uh, not enough people to fill it. As he parked his car in northwest Kiev, a Ukrainian soldier agreed to be interviewed. What have you seen so far um, in Ukraine, and, and what's the situation? Yeah, war and victory is coming up soon. So what's the atmosphere like um, for you? Because the atmosphere is devastating. Whatever way, it's all going to be good. I also asked him what his hopes are for the future. I give the energy. Democratic, free Ukraine, happy. Uh, democratic, free Ukraine and happy. Many civilians woke up to the sound of bombshells the first day of the invasion on Thursday morning, including Alexandra, who's in South Ukraine with her grandma. Yesterday at 5 a.m., uh, I woke up because of the bombs. <laughs> I heard, I heard it, and uh, I was uh, because of it in a big stress, and uh, it was so. Uh, unexpected to understand that actually uh, the war starts, so it was difficult. And I called my father, my mother, and I explained my granny that everything is not okay, we have to prepare, we have to be strong. If she hears the sound of sirens, it means she would need to go down to the basement. Yeah. So, so here is on the basement, it is not bomb shelter, so it's just way to to be to be uh, to feel safety <laughs> yeah and here we have some places for sitting they are not very they're not perfect it's just old chairs or just some pieces of uh, wood so we can sit here and we took with us some water some food despite the worries she said many people have got in contact to ask about the situation in ukraine which makes her feel she's not alone. Jane Worrell, NTD News. More sanctions from the White House today, this time targeting Putin directly. That's as Biden's handling of this overseas conflict comes under the microscope. Some, even from Biden's own party, say the sanctions aren't enough. Here's the latest from the, on the administration's actions on Russia. The White House today confirming President Biden will sanction Putin directly. In alignment with the decision by our European allies, the United States will join them in sanctioning President Putin and Foreign Minister Lavrov and members of the Russian national security team. But what kind of impact will it have? The White House says this sends a message about the strength of opposition to Putin's actions. The sanctions so far have hit the Russian financial system, and the administration says it'll be even more noticeable over time. What is true is that these measures are designed uh, to garner strength, to garner momentum over time. The U.S. measures so far have stopped short of sanctioning Russia's central bank. But lawmakers, even within Biden's party, says this should be done. 
Democratic Senator Bob Menendez, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, wrote, Congress and the Biden administration must not shy away from any options, including sanctioning the Russian central bank. And here's another senator calling for the U.S. to launch an effort to cut through Putin's propaganda and to reach the Russian people. In addition to sanctioning him, we should have a massive information operation. He does lying all the time. We should do truth-telling. The Russian people need to understand how much money Putin and his buddies have stolen from them. Our, our enemy here is not the Russian people. It's the corruption at the top of that regime uh, that is invading a peaceful neighbor. The administration says the purpose of sanctions in the long run is to hurt Russia so badly that they will get serious about de-escalation and starting diplomatic talks. The State Department today was questioned about helping Americans in Ukraine. Most recently, uh, warnings that Americans should leave the country. Uh, so since October of 2021, we have seen uh, a, um, a sweeping shift uh, in the advice and guidance we have provided to Americans who either sought to travel to Ukraine or Americans who might have been resident in Ukraine. The U.S. government does not keep records of exactly how many Americans are in foreign countries, but the State Department estimates there were less than 6,600 Americans residing in Ukraine as of October last year. And Congress members offered their thoughts on the war between Russia and Ukraine. They spoke with NTD at the Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, in Florida today. Congressman Scott Perry says he believes there are two reasons why the situation got to where it is right now. It's weak rhetoric and weak posturing from the President of the United States regarding Afghanistan, regarding the things he said about Ukraine and Russia. He's essentially opened the door wide open for, for Russia to invade. So that's kind of number one or number two. The other number one or two is our posture towards energy. None of this is affordable to, to Vladimir Putin with a 40 or 50 percent of his economy controlled by, by oil and gas. None of it's affordable unless the United States isn't producing, which drives the price up because there's just a lack of availability on the market under the Biden administration. Here's what he suggests the U.S. and allies should be doing. We need to stop it right where it is now. So, so we need to tough sanctions immediately. NATO needs to be empowered and needs leadership. NATO isn't anything without the United States of America, but this is, this is NATO's job. It's in Western Europe's backyard. They need to be at the forefront of this fight, and the United States needs to support them, support them in the forefront of this fight. And finally, if not most important, the United States needs to be producing three to five million barrels a day, every single day. And Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene also agrees. But Joe Biden should have never taken the sanctions off the Nord Stream to pipeline should have never done it. He did that. One of the first things he did in office in January of 21. Now we have seen Putin just move in. Here's what she says the U.S. should be focusing on. Most importantly, we should be energy independent again. We were that just over a year ago. That should be the number one thing we should be doing after the border. We should be energy independent. We should never have to depend on Russia or China or any other country, the Middle East, anywhere. China refuses to describe the Russia-Ukraine conflict as an invasion, saying the issue has complex historical reasons. At the same time, critics worry that Western sanctions will give Beijing larger influence over Russia and make China a more powerful competitor. Here are the details. China called for talks Thursday to settle the Ukraine crisis. So far, Beijing has avoided criticizing President Vladimir Putin. We have repeatedly stated China's position on the Ukraine issue. 
This issue has a complex historical background and reasons. The result we are seeing today is an interplay of all kinds of factors. But in Washington, President Biden is taking a clear, strong stance. The sanctions we oppose exceed anything that's ever been done. U.S. sanctions are nothing new for Russia. In order to minimize the impact of Crimea-related sanctions, Russia has been trying to expand gas exports with China for the past decade. Just last month, Russia signed a 30-year contract to supply natural gas to China. The two sides agreed that payment would be made in euros rather than U.S. dollars, the standard for many international trade transactions. Back in 2014, the two countries signed another gas supply contract after 10-plus years of negotiations. Industry analysts believe that amid the aftereffects of U.S. sanctions over Crimea, Russia gave China favorable trade terms. That's under pressure from Beijing and Russia's own need for export revenue. Now, similar concerns are rising given Washington's ambitious sanction plan and the fact that many more Western countries will likely follow suit. That means that Russia will basically only be able to sell petrol or gas or energy to China. China will have a monopsony on that. In other words, they'll be the only buyer or one of the only buyers of Russia's uh, exports, which means that China will have incredible control over the Russian economy. And according to Graceffo, the ripple effects of that situation may make China a more powerful competitor in the world economy. So China now will become Russia's economic benefactor. Russia will be firmly within China's uh, sphere of influence. And then the other benefit to China is that they will be able to produce products very cheaply because as a monopsony buyer, they should be able to dictate the price of gas and they won't have to pay world price. Russia is a global oil superpower, one of the five biggest exporters in the world. The Russia-Ukraine conflict has already driven up oil prices. And on top of the oil trade, Beijing also approved imports of Russian wheat, a step that could dull the impact of Western sanctions. China approved the imports Thursday from all regions of Russia. The move gives Putin an alternative to Western markets, avenues that may close under possible sanctions. Russia is one of the world's biggest wheat producers, but until recently, China has shut out Russian wheat, allegedly for fear of possible fungus contamination. That ban was lifted earlier this month. The two nations struck the deal during Putin's recent trip to Beijing, where he became the highest profile foreign guest to attend the Winter Olympics. And President Biden announces his pick for the U.S. Supreme Court today. It comes as some are questioning where this historic decision will lead the country. My nominee for the United States Supreme Court is Judge Ketanji Jackson. The day has arrived. President Biden announced Friday his pick to replace outgoing Justice Stephen Breyer. It's my honor to introduce to the country a daughter of former public school teachers, a proven consensus builder, an accomplished lawyer, a distinguished jurist, one of the nation's most on one of the nation's most prestigious courts. Jackson, 51, sits on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. If confirmed, she will become the first black woman to serve on the high court. Justice Breyer, the members of the Senate will decide if I fill your seat, but please know that I could never fill your shoes. As the successor to Breyer, Jackson would not change the court's current 6-3 to three conservative majority. But that doesn't mean things will stay the same. Well, Justice Breyer is known for being on the more liberal side of the Supreme Court. Uh, he's actually been somewhat consistent in his 
ruling in favor of religious liberty. Breyer joined the majority to rule in favor of religious rights in nine of 13 religious liberty cases since 2006. But Brad Dacus, the president of a conservative legal group, says religious liberty is one area in which Jackson can add uncertainty. If Jackson is put on the Supreme Court, there's a good chance she'll be there for at least three decades. And during, that, during those three decades, we're going to have other justices replaced, and the court could easily shift to the left and be hostile towards religious freedom and people of faith. Meanwhile, Republicans are already firing back. Senator Lindsey Graham said the radical left has won President Biden over yet again. And Senator Marsha Blackburn called Jackson a rubber stamp for a radical progressive agenda. The White House pushed back on such comments on Friday. She's ruled in favor of Republicans and Democrats. She's ruled for and against the government, regardless of whether the government is led by a Democratic president or a Republican president. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on Friday called for bipartisan support. But if GOP support does not materialize, Democrats would need the backing of every single Democrat in a 50-50 Senate. Conservatives are amassing in the Sunshine State for this year's CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. Their slogan this year is Awake, Not Woke. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. For the second year in a row, CPAC has made Orlando its base. The four-day event started on Thursday, opening its doors to a wave of conservatives. Networking and media interviews are just a part of the conference. A familiar but noticeably slimmer Trump administration official spoke on Friday. Uh, by the way, I was out talking to you some this morning. The most common question was, like, how'd you lose all that weight? <laughs> President Trump himself is scheduled to take the podium on Saturday. The governor of the Sunshine State opened the conference with a fervent speech against wokeism, which he said is a form of cultural Marxism. We need people all over the country to be willing to put on that full armor of God, to stand firm against the left schemes. You'll be met with flaming arrows, but the shield of faith will stop them. You will emerge victorious. Many other big-name conservatives were there, like Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton and Turning Point's Charlie Kirk. At least one Democrat is expected to speak at the conference, former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. In an interview with Politico, Gabbard said she'll speak about the need for people to actually treat each other with respect and end this tribalism and divisiveness that's tearing them apart. CPAC was founded in 1974 by the American Conservative Union, and it promotes conservatism as a political philosophy that emphasizes individual liberty. There are a variety of opinions about what conservatism is, but dictionaries generally agree that the political philosophy stresses respect for traditional institutions, such as religion, family, and marriage. CPAC ends on Sunday. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Coming up, a landmark opioid settlement. J&J &J and three distributors finalize deals, clearing the way for billions of dollars to help fight the opioid crisis. And the People's Convoy made one last stop in Arizona before heading to New Mexico. At this stop, the vice president of the largest Native American tribe came out to greet them and wish everyone a safe journey. That and more in just a moment here on NTD News.
Healthcare giant Johnson & Johnson and three major drug distributors have agreed to a nationwide settlement over their role in the opioid addiction crisis. They'll pay a combined $26 billion to nearly every state and local government in the U.S. It's the largest settlement to date among the thousands of lawsuits over opioids. The funds will be used to pay for drug treatment and other programs aimed at reversing the crisis in places that have been devastated by it. That includes many parts of rural America. The money is to be delivered over 18 years and could start flowing to communities by April. As part of the settlement, Johnson & Johnson has agreed not to resume making prescription opioids. And as the People's Convoy continues its journey, its most recent stop was on the Arizona-New Mexico border. The vice president of the largest Native American tribe came out and welcomed the convoy. NTD's Jason Perry was on the ground. I'm here in Lupton, Arizona right now, and the convoy is taking off. Each day, the convoy is increasing in size. Yesterday, we had about 50 trucks, and right now, it could be as much as 60. And today, the vice president of Navajo Nation came to speak and support the People's Convoy to D.C. Welcome you to the Navajo Nation as you go forward. Continue to just marvel at God's beautiful creation. The Navajo Nation is one of the most beautiful sights in all the world. Our hearts are with you. God bless you. It's really just messaging, getting back to the, the, the root and the foundation of the United States, right? Uh, religious liberty and able to, to say what's on your mind and not, you know, get offended and not, you know, uh, I guess uh, get you know, all up in arms and whatnot. So these are tenuous times and I just wanted to come and support. I appreciate passion. I appreciate everything that they're, they're standing for. The organizer of the People's Convoy clarified the purpose of the convoy before giving everyone instructions on how to get to the next destination. It's time that we remind the governments of the world, not just the United States government, but the governments of the world, that they work for their people. It's time to usher a new renaissance of freedom. Others at the rally point in Arizona explained why they are supporting the People's Convoy. The right to free speech is universal. It's not whether you agree with the person or not. Each and every person around this world has their free choice, okay? If you want to wear a mask, go ahead. If you want to get vaccinated, go ahead. The point is to get along. I just want to say this is more of a spiritual battle. As you can see, there's a lot of good and evil, and we need to come together as Americans. As we get closer to Washington, D.C., one day at a time, the people in the convoy appear to be more united than ever. Many are saying this is not just about COVID mandates, but taking a stand for freedom and the Constitution. Jason Perry, NCD News, Arizona. What's the price you have to pay when there's a war going on? From the gas pump to the supermarket, prices have already gone up in the past year, and now they may rise even higher. NTD's Sean Marshall reports. Russia and Ukraine at war, gas prices are already on the way up. An average cost of $3.50 per gallon. It's almost an entire dollar more than last year. I mean, this is this is insane. Five five dollars a gallon. Gas would be the major one that will go up. We caught up with New Yorker Rachel, who just bought a new car. She's surprised to see gas prices up so much since the last time she purchased gas. Uh, it was fifty dollars, and it is eighty-one dollars today. Maybe I'm gonna have to sell my car and <laughs> stop buying gas. Global oil prices jumped to over $105 per barrel Thursday, the highest it's been since 2014. The restaurants, expensive. 
Um, nail salons, expensive. Everywhere is expensive. Both Russia and Ukraine are top exporters of wheat, and the conflict has pushed wheat prices to their highest level since 2012. The Russian crisis will exacerbate inflation and uncertainty. Elliot Moskowitz is CEO of premium kosher meat merchant Prairie Street Prime. People are always going to raise prices because they don't know what's going to happen in the future. Moskowitz said he's already trying to keep his prices as low as possible while offering his premium product. Sean Marshall, NTD News, New York. The New York City subway can be a dangerous place for many reasons. One of those reasons is the chance of being pushed onto the subway tracks. But in some stations, that will no longer be possible. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan's underground. Every few minutes, a train rolls into this station. And as you can see, there's nothing separating me from the tracks. Sometimes people do get pushed onto the tracks. Now barriers will be installed and tested via pilot program. And we're recommending a pilot to install platform screen doors at three stations. These have been used in newer systems around the world, and we've studied them extensively at the MTA. Cities across the globe, especially in Asia, have been using platform doors for their subway stations for some time. Here in the U.S., New York City would be the first underground subway to use them. Earlier this year, a woman died after being pushed onto the tracks. Another problem is people purposely crossing the rails, which can lead to injuries and death. 1,267 reported incidents of track intrusion last year. The vast majority are voluntary intrusions. But some members of the public think platform doors aren't the solution. Spending $100 million on three platform doors uh, in three stations uh, guys, that's going to be a waste of money. If uh, EDP wants to push someone down the stairs, they're going to push someone down the stairs. They're going to find a way to attack someone. For now, it doesn't look like New York will install these doors on a large scale. There are three main issues. Narrow platforms in our system that can't accommodate barriers while retaining ADA accessibility, and also a number, uh, quite a large number of elevated platforms that can't support the added weight of these systems. In addition to those problems, we have misaligned door configurations. There are alternatives to platform doors, such as nets and fences, for example. But according to the MTA, those alternatives are less safe for passengers than platform doors. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. Coming up, the association head for L.A. Deputy District Attorneys says they're recalling the district attorney because of his failed policies and a rise in crime. He said this is the first time the association has tried to recall a DA. These rare strawberries are imported from Japan. But even though they're costly, locals still pay a pretty penny for them. That and more on NTD News. Years ago, a Los Angeles man was sentenced to death for robbing and shooting a father of three. Now the district attorney is planning to drop the murderer's death sentence. The family feels abandoned. A DA association leader explains why cases like these are driving the push to recall the DA. Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon is planning to resentence a man who murdered another man 30 years ago. His leniency towards criminals have fueled a movement to recall him. 
Nearly 98% of the LA prosecutors who participated in a vote support the recall of Gascon over his crime policies. Over 80% of the lawyers voted, the highest turnout the organization has ever seen. Felons with firearms are not considered serious or violent under the California Penal Code, but we all know what they are. They are serious crimes. Under his bail policies, those people are getting released immediately. So by the time that the police officer writes the report, that defendant who had a gun, who put everyone's life in danger, that defendant is walking out of a police station. In January 1992, 21-year-old Scott Forrest Collins was sentenced to death for robbing and shooting 41-year-old Fred Rose, a father of three. The victim's family was told Collins would be resentenced to life without the possibility of parole, which means he would never leave prison but also not be on death row. The family is against the decision and was told there may not be a hearing. It's not really about the death penalty. It's about where will this stop. If they can commute the death sentence, they can commute life in prison without parole down the line. Since Gascon took office, he has come up with many policies with a goal to remove the death sentence. This includes reviewing existing death sentences. Siddle sees Gascon's policies as a huge social experiment that needs to end and is calling on the public to recall the DA. You know, we deal with the victims. We see our victims. To not be able to say to your victim that I'm going to get you justice and I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to fight for you 100%. And, and the fact that these victims have to go get their own lawyers to protect their interests is deeply upsetting to most prosecutors. Siddle said this is the first time the Association of District Attorneys have tried to recall a DA. A nice ripe strawberry is a deep shade of red, right? But have you heard of white strawberries? These imported strawberries are so popular that shops can't keep up with demand. NTD's David Lamb reports. We normally see red strawberries in the U.S., but some locals have been wanting to try white strawberries, but they've been sold out. The Awayuki strawberry is a premium white strawberry, highly prized for its aroma, flavor, appearance, and texture. And at the local Nijia market in Northern California, it's sold out about an hour after the store opened. Yeah, I came here about two weeks ago, and I came at noon, and they opened at 9, but they were all sold out already of the strawberries, so they told me to come back today, so I'm back here trying to get some more strawberries. So, A pack of 11 strawberries would cost you nearly $28. That's over 2 bucks per berry. Thank you very much. I'm all, I don't want this one. I didn't realize how expensive they were. I'm only going to get one. <laughs> I don't know if someone wants that one. Um, I thought... You know, maybe this one time, it's not, it's not a common thing. It's only here like once or twice, I think, a year. And the red Amayao strawberry is popular in Japan. It is sweeter than regular strawberries in America. How do you think it would taste? I think it's just going to taste like heavenly and super sweet. She told NTD she's seen them with a price tag of $40 elsewhere. So I love the idea of strawberries and I love strawberry flavored things. But I've never liked actual strawberries here in the U.S. because they're so bitter and sour at times. So when I found out about these and like how sweet they are, I just really want to try them. The store assistant told NTD the white strawberries are from Tamina in Kumamoto Prefecture in Kyushu area of Japan. Even though she's from Japan, she said she has never tried them herself. I'm hoping more sweet than our normal strawberries we get here. Really juicy I'm going for. And I'm really excited. Uh, my wife's going to be happy when I wake her up right now to say I got her some white strawberries. <laughs> According to strawberryplants.org, a website about growing strawberries, 
A protein allows the berries to turn red as they mature. White strawberries tend to be deficient or completely lack this protein, so they don't have the ability to turn red. Yeah, so it's really sweet and definitely has a nice scent to it as well. So these Awayuki strawberries get their unique color due to restricting sunlight during its growing process. And in Japan, they can be served with condensed milk while eating. Now, the manager with the Nijia market told us that um, they're expecting another shipment as early as this weekend. David Lamb, NTD News, California. A Southern California city is looking to build a water purification plant wholly powered with green energy. The proposal comes after the city recently moved to power its grid completely from renewable resources. Orange County announced this week the development of a seawater desalinization plant powered completely by renewable energy. Officials said it will be the first of its kind in the Western Hemisphere. Orange County Power Authority officials and Poseidon Water, a desalinization developer, signed a non-binding agreement planning to investigate the feasibility of renewable power sources. The plan is expected to be built in Huntington Beach and would use 19 gigawatts per month. It would be one of the largest energy consumers in the county. Sourcing reusable energy comes from the Power Authority's Community Choice Program. The program buys and sells energy from neighboring cities. Historically, much of Southern California has relied on Southern California Edison for electricity needs. Though the authority promised cheap and green energy, prices are currently 5.6% higher than Edison's. Three other cities have joined Huntington Beach in the program, including Irvine, Buena Park, and Fullerton. Coming up, hours after Putin put boots on the ground in Ukraine, Beijing sent fighter jets soaring near Taiwan. Is the island next in line for invasion? Taiwan's president reacts to the concerns. And sports organizations react to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The governing body of European soccer moves the Champions League final from Russia to France. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News. Thousands of Ukrainians are fleeing their homes following the Russian invasion. And online, discussion is heating up over whether today's Ukraine will be tomorrow's Taiwan, if Beijing copies Russia and invades the island. Here's Taiwan's response. With war raging between Russia and Ukraine, a new statement from Taiwan's president. She says the island's military is actively monitoring the Taiwan Strait. Our military's ability and will to defend our homeland is constantly improving. Taiwan's defense minister says comparing Taiwan to Ukraine is like comparing apples to oranges, as the two are very different in terms of geographic location and geopolitical tensions. But he adds that Taiwan's military is keeping a close eye out for potential action. We should take note if Beijing will have any moves following conflicts between Russia and Ukraine. We're paying close attention to that. He notes Taiwan can reference Ukraine's situation, but his conclusion is that Taiwan should rely on self-defense instead of seeking help from other countries. Taiwan's defense ministry also released footage of military members on duty around the clock, ready for any emergency situation. 
The video features a variety of footage from military drills. At the end of the video, the defense ministry says the island will always prepare to the best of its ability and will fight till the end. The sporting community has condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine. European football's governing body has moved the Champions League final from St. Petersburg to Paris. And the International Olympic Committee criticized the Russian government for breaching the Olympic truce. Here's NTD's Eddie Aitken with this report. The European football's governing body, UEFA, announced that the 2022 Champions League final has been moved from Gazprom Stadium in St. Petersburg to the Stade de France in Paris due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It said the home games of Ukrainian and Russian club and national teams competing in UEFA competitions will be played at neutral venues until further notice. UEFA made the decision following an extraordinary meeting on Friday. It also said the date for the final remains the same on May 28th. UEFA said in a statement that strongly condemns Russia's military invasion of Ukraine. British football club Manchester United dropped Russian state-owned airline Aeroflot as a sponsor, citing events in Ukraine, after the company was banned in Britain on Thursday as part of sanctions. Athletes from a number of sports also voiced their concerns about travelling to Russia. The men's tennis governing body said next week's ATP Challenger event in Moscow will not take place as scheduled due to concerns over player safety and uncertainty related to international travel. Four times Formula One champion Sebastian Vettel said he will not take part in September's Grand Prix in Sochi, adding it was wrong to race in Russia. World champion Max Verstappen agreed with him. The International Olympic Committee has condemned the invasion of Ukraine. It stated the Russian government has breached the Olympic truce currently in effect until after next month's Winter Paralympic Games. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Still to come, after close to 10 years of restoration in Italy, one of the world's largest musical instruments is back home in California. And a giant Australian opal sells for six figures at an auction in Alaska. We have the family story that goes along with it. That and more coming up in just a moment. Men's tennis has been dominated by the big three of Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer for nearly two decades. But with the news that Danil Medvedev will be the new number one, is their era finally ending? NTD's Dave Martin has more. It's been more than 18 years since Roger Federer first ascended to the top of the ATP rankings. Since that time, only three other players have been there, Nadal, Djokovic, and even Andy Murray. Now with the 26-year-old Medvedev finally breaking through, is this a sign that younger players are finally catching up? Djokovic's drop, though, is largely attributed to his absence at the Australian Open, which cost him some 2,000 points in the rankings, which are calculated based on their best 19 tournament finishes on a rolling 52-week period. The 34-year-old was one win away from sweeping the slams last season before Medvedev dropped him at the U.S. Open. 
Any whispers about Nadal not having it anymore after a rare loss at the French Open last year were erased when the 35-year-old downed Medvedev in the finals last month for his second Australian Open championship. Like Djokovic, his number five ATP ranking has more to do with him having played fewer tournaments than anything else. For the injured Federer, it seems unlikely he'll be able to return to form, though. Now 40 years old, he hasn't played since last July following his third knee surgery in an 18-month span. He has now fallen to 29th in the rankings in what had previously been a young man's game. After all, Pete Sampras won the last of his 14 majors at age 31 when he won the 2002 U.S. Open and retired immediately. Andre Agassi won the Australian Open the following year at age 32, at the time making him the oldest to do so in more than three decades. But that list has been overrun by the big three as well. The trio has won a combined 10 majors at an older age than Agassi's 32, highlighted by Federer's 2018 Australian Open title when he was 36. Only a 37-year-old Ken Rosewall back in 1972 won a major at an older age. Medvedev looks like the best of the next group and could conceivably take Federer's place soon. Though like many of his peers, he has a losing record against each of the big three and only has one Grand Slam championship on his resume. By comparison, Federer had already won 11 majors by the time he was Medvedev's age. Nadal had won 10 and Djokovic 6. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. A famous organ is back home after nearly 10 years of repairs. The instrument is one of the largest in the world, and it has finally returned to a cathedral in Orange County, California. The Hazel Wright organ was disassembled piece by piece in 2013 and removed from Christ Cathedral in Southern California's Orange County. From there, it was shipped to Italy for repair. At the time, the fifth largest pipe organ in the world was suffering from a bug infestation. And still worse, its pipes were melted and trumpets corroded. This organ went under renovations for about five to ten years. Most of it was shipped all the way back to Italy, which is really cool. So the original Italians who built the thing actually went through and restored each pipe. Nearly a decade and three million dollars later, Hazel was back in the fully remodeled sanctuary. What every organist dreams of is an instrument that's as big and exciting as this, but also as beautiful and intimate as this instrument can get. So in, in terms of serving the Catholic liturgy, that means you can accompany one single singer or lead the whole congregation in some uh, wonderful hymn. Its rehabilitation has been an arduous process. After extensive work at the factory in Italy, the pieces were shipped back to Orange County. You really can get the full surround sound effect in this, uh, which is a really, really unique to this space. You get surround sound organ here. Piero Ruffati originally built Hazel, and in late 2019, returned for the reinstallation. In its current iteration, the organ has some 17,000 pipes and 293 ranks. It's the largest pipe organ in a Roman Catholic cathedral in the Western Hemisphere. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A huge opal that made its journey from Australia to the United States has been sold at auction for over $140,000. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Alaska auctioneer Nick Klein received a call out of the blue last October. A man said he had one of the world's largest opals and wanted to auction it off. Uh, turns out he was correct. Um, he pulled out of his closet this impressive 12,000 carat 
um, Opal, along with provenance documents outlining its entire history, um, gave me the family story, and um, suspicion quickly turned to a realization that we were dealing with something extremely important. Dubbed Americus Australis, it's the sister gem to the even larger Olympic Australis, named after the Summer Olympic Games held in Australia in 1956. Uh, the family story was that this opal was found in 1956 in the Eight Mile Opal Fields of Cooper Pedy, Australia. Um, it was purchased shortly thereafter by Altman and Cherney and Associates, a long-standing um, opal dealer in South Australia as part of a larger parcel that also included the largest gem quality opal in the world. The smaller of the two made its way to America, where Fred von Brandt's grandfather purchased it. So as you'll see, um, the stone itself is accompanied by a pendant of approximately 118 carats that was cut by the fourth generation family somewhere along the line with the intention that the ultimate final owner of the stone would wear it around their neck as a memento. The gem was offered at auction on Sunday, with an opening bid set at $125,000. It sold for nearly $144,000. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Today, off the coast of Portugal, professional surfers took advantage of huge waves that reached 16,000 feet deep. Big wave surfers need more than just skills and courage. Nature also plays a big part. Good thing the promising forecast, solid swell, and clean conditions at a beach in Nazare today encouraged the most adventurous surfers. Hundreds of mask-wearing spectators gathered to watch the surfers as they attempted to tame the waters in a location that generates record-breaking waves. The massive size of the waves is due to a deep underwater canyon. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for joining in. I'm Stephanie Cox.